<laughs> Look, I mean, the problem with these shows is that I feel like with, uh, um, with every passing episode, I'm more and more nervous about how we start the thing. Oh yeah. Do you, do you, do you feel that? Yeah, there is some pressure to have a pretty impressive open because we're known for that. Right. It's like our trademark. Speaking of which, okay, so I was in the elevator coming up to your apartment. And Demir. someone said to you, are you shouting a meet of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast? <laughs> that would be amazing. Sadly, that did not happen. But Sad. instead, it was an older, um, an older fellow, um, a white male fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got triggered in the elevator. He, he started a, com- a conversation with me and I was triggered. You were triggered. And I felt like I was in an unsafe space because he asked me, can you believe what he asked me in the elevator as we were going up? He asked me, where are you from originally? Originally. He said it with a smile, but still I was like, t- I was like, Oh my God. And I told him. Yeah. And you said Pennsylvania. <laughs> Did you do that? Did I, you do that? As you I, I That's the right that. answer. It is, but I said originally Egyptian. And then um, he's like, oh, yeah, well, I ask everyone this because I'm from Kansas and no one cares. Hmm. And then he mentioned that he had some friend who um, went to Egypt and studied there or something. Did you really feel triggered? No, I'm joking. Of course right, not. Right, right, <laughs> Well, I don't know. You know, it's... it's um. It's, it's a tough thing, uh, the question of racism. Um, it, I don't even know how to begin talking about it because it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, people get triggered by, by the very subject, right? Yeah. Um, it, it feels like a lot of stuff has been conflated into the category now. Um, that, uh, well, again, Let's just, I mean, what's, what's, what's on my mind is, uh, my, my friend and former colleague, uh, Walter Mead, uh, is in the news these days because, uh, uh, a PC wrote about China, um, got, uh, headlined, uh, I forget what it was, something along the lines of, uh, uh, China is the sick man of Asia. It wasn't the whole title, but that was in it, right? The sick man of Asia. And, um, the Chinese authorities uh, in Beijing uh, saw an opportunity. Uh, I think they're unhappy about most of the criticism they're getting about the, the how they're dealing with the coronavirus um, and jumped really hard on this, saying that uh, this is, in fact, racist. Um, and they've managed to pick up a kind of um, uh, groundswell, right, on uh, among commentators. I mean, the story has now been picked up uh, in the media. I think partly, you know, places like MSNBC run it because the Wall Street Journal is on the right. So they're the enemy. Oh, so wait, so MSNBC was criticizing the Wall Street Journal? Well, they were reporting on the fact that uh, the Chinese authorities were think upset. Think that this is racist. Yeah, think this okay. is racist. But then they were, you know, they, they were interviewing, uh, uh, and this is where it gets interesting. They're interviewing scholars or people, commentators, and, and, um, who were saying, yes, you know, this is a, a racist title. Now, again, you know, on the on the one hand, uh, it is important to note that, you know, uh, as you know, well, as a writer, editors do end up picking uh, what the title is. So on the one hand, um, I'm sure it's not a comfortable situation for Walter. I, I don't think he would have necessarily picked that title. It's not it's as I understand, it's not his. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, 
I, I looked it up. I looked up uh, because there was a lot of this commentary. And, and sure enough, it was something that was bandied around uh, in the 19th century. Um, it came after the whole concept of the sick man of Europe, which was what people talked about the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. Empire yeah. um, but it, it really struck me how... So sick man of Asia did have a usage in the 19th century. It did. And it, did. it was problematic. Well, I mean, uh, you I know, guess everything was problematic in the 19th century. Well, so I mean, that's what it comes down to. And that's what I, I sort of wanted to pick your brain on, because it, it is that is the, the interesting thing is that exactly as you said it, everything really is problematic in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, uh, but the 19th century also was, you know, uh, how do I put it? Um the golden age, <laughs> the golden age of imperialism. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's to say the, the conflation comes of this is that, um, clearly colonialism was a brutal process. Um, but is talking about or evoking something like the sick man of X, you know, um, because it is a phrase that comes from the colonial period. Is it necessarily racist? Uh, that's sort of the, the core question I have. I don't know how, how you think about it. I, I tweeted something saying, you know, it, are we going to now hear from, well, not in so many words, but from Erdogan that, you know, uh, sick man of Europe is Turkophobic, you know, um, as a, as a phrase. Is that, uh, and then, you know, I, I'd also, there's, there's the meta question of all of this, which is, um, it does feel like the Chinese authorities are really playing this up pretty skillfully. You know, I mean, it's weaponizing wokeness. Yep. Um, and it's working. Um, so I don't know. I just throw that out for you for starters. How do you, how, how do you parse something like that? Like the sick man of Asia? Is that, is that? Okay. So it wouldn't have occurred to me to think that a title like that was racist. I mean, now that it's been brought up, I can kind of process it and try to figure out what I think. But as is so often the case, if we're not looking for offense, we're not going to be aware of a lot of these things, but it's other people and other online mobs that start saying something's racist. Then we start wondering, wait, is it racist? Is it not? And we wouldn't have thought, thought twice about it otherwise. I mean, the sick man phrasing it, I don't think there's a good case for, for racism there because it's used for different regions. It's used for Europe. It's used for Asia and you can use it for different countries. So it's not as if saying sick man of Asia necessarily is referring to China. It could also be referring to any other Asian country, including Asian countries of different races. So for sure. example, like, I don't know, India or Pakistan, they're in Asia too, right? But, but it doesn't matter that that's why I think the, the question of Turkey is, is uh, critical. Does it matter that, um, you know, uh, European powers were struggling against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was falling further and further behind. They, everyone knew it, including, including the Ottomans. And it was a scornful thing to say, ultimately. But it was also true. But it was also true. So the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire was becoming the sick man of Europe in its final century or two, especially its final century. Um, now again, the, the Chinese case is more complicated because at least the Chinese argument for this would be that, uh, you know, the, uh, the way the European powers, the colonial powers treated China was in fact, you know, uh, you talk about colonial rape. I, it's, it's, you know, the starting with the opium wars and, and, and how, uh, yeah. how, how, how China was brought low 
Um, but you know what? It's so absurd to me that the Chinese regime is going on about this ra- about how this is racist when this is literally one of the worst regimes in the world, if not in my view, the the worst. I mean, what they're doing to the Uyghur Muslims is at a level of atrocity that is is almost unspeakable. And, um, you know, we're talking about more than a million Muslims being in re-education camps. We're talking about forced marriage with Ch- uh, Chinese Communist Party officials. We're talking about trying to erase a culture, erase a religion in a way that is actually somewhat rare um, in the, at least in recent decades. I mean, this level of really tr- quite literally trying to erase a people and their identity. So for them to to then turn around and say, we're offended by racism, um, it, it's it's weaponized precisely as you say, because it's in bad faith. The, chi- the, the, the Chinese regime doesn't care about racism. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Uh, so we shouldn't indulge them. So even if, you know, no one should, um, when they see Chinese, uh, Communist Party officials or Chinese media using this kind of rhetoric and weaponizing it to their advantage, no one should fall into the trap of taking it seriously. So that would be my basic position on this. Like, even if there is some kernel, of legitimacy to these critiques. If you're some post-colonial scholar in a liberal arts school, I don't know, like Oberlin College or, or something, you know, maybe they have an argument based on like post-colonial discourse and all that. I just don't like, I, I feel like, um, I'm, I'm so done with woke offense. I'm so tired of it. And, you know, there was this whole thing. There was this book called American Dirt. And mm. I literally bought a copy of it just to own the libs. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to buy it. I, don't, I have enough books like so, in so, my pile by my like bedpost but or t- whatever. Tell me about that book because honestly, I, I saw some Twitter threads on it and some mocking. What, what is it? What? I don't know. Like the, 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 uh, the author who wrote it is like, I don't know, one tenth, um, ethnically diverse, but mostly a white person. And she, the main characters are, I guess, his Hispanic. And apparently people are uncomfortable that she's speaking on behalf oh, of people oh, oh. of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's um, indulging in tropes about Hispanic. I don't know that that's the criticism or whatever, but it's been really well reviewed. Um, and I, and Oprah put it in her book club and that's why it's gotten a lot of attention, but now people are freaking out about it and she had to cancel part of her American tour. But obviously, so people are saying, Oh my God, she can't even promote her book. But you know, I bought her book because of this. So clearly I don't think it's going to hurt sales. I think it's actually going to help sales because it's a controversy now, right? Right. And I wouldn't have cared otherwise. And you know, I wouldn't, and I, I love Walter, Walter stuff, but I don't, I, I don't always have a chance to read every one sure. of his new columns. The reason that I read this new column about China, the sick man of Asia is precisely because of the controversy that I saw around it. Hmm. So there, that's one reason we read things we otherwise wouldn't read. So in some sense, um, I would like to be part of a controversy when I have a new article out and I want the Chinese Communist Party to be pissed off at me because more people will read the article. Right. I, I, let, I just want to sort of pull, push you, pull you back on, on, on something though. I mean, your, your anecdote in the elevator is a good one. Um, because, uh, so, you know, I, I, I wrote my little tweet and, and I, I quote tweeted this, this, uh, uh, 
I, I guess she's Chinese American author who was, uh, again, I think very fair to Walter. She said, you know, I, the article was fine, which is interesting, right? The article itself is unobjectionable, uh, in these terms and just points out and says that the, the title itself is racist and racist is racist, she says. And so I said, you know, uh, I quote tweeted her and not at message her, but said, you know, basically, come on, people. You're, you're being played. You're being played by, yeah. by the Chinese authorities. And she said, no, racism is racism. And, and, you know, I understand that the Chinese are playing this up, but that doesn't, that doesn't counter the fact that this is unacceptable, right? Um, and so, you know, it's fine to, 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 I, I think take this sort of, uh, um, meta pose about controversy and say that, you know, all publicity is good publicity. Uh, but there's something about about this kind of, I think, um, dogmatic stance about these things that, you know, uh, well, I mean, it's a profoundly moral stance is what it is, right? Uh, that that these are moral rights and wrongs and uh, a moral transgression has been done here and it must be called out. So, you know, even if you're being played by, as you said, one of the most cynical um, and uh, uh, brutal regimes yeah. on earth – uh, that is very clearly to anyone who is paying attention, uh, you know, not at all motivated by anti-racism, put it that way. Um, it doesn't matter because it's important to call this out. And again, uh, never mind that that creates opportunities to be played with, but it's, it's, um, do you subscribe to that? Like that sort of thing? Like is, 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 <sighs> there's so much in here. Is it that, um, is taking offense enough? Because again, to pull it back to the Chinese question, um, regime aside, uh, yeah. I, as I understand it, you know, the, the national pride of China is, and I, I mean, the regime has cultivated this certainly as a thing about not taking offense. And there is a cult of how, uh, the Chinese nation was brought low in the 19th century. Uh, you know, arguably the entire, uh, motivation for China rising up and developing itself, even, you know, be it communist regimes, but it's always this sort of, you know, up from our knees respect. Um, so if that is offended, um, is that, you know, is what's the nexus between racism and taking offense also, also look, you know? I mean, so I think that in Walter's piece, and I can perhaps say a little bit about what I think Walter was trying to get at. I don't, I think the title is a distraction from what is actually um, a really important critique of China and what China has become, and specifically the Chinese regime. It's an interesting question of to what extent we can separate between, completely separate between the regime and its population. Obviously, the two are not interchangeable, and that's why I try to go out of my way to say the Chinese regime, instead of using the kind of more broad, the Chinese did X, Y, the Chinese are bad, the Chinese are putting Muslims in education camps, because you wouldn't want to cast aspersions on an entire people. I mean, that said, from what we do know, the the Chinese regime does enjoy significant support from its own people. Um, we don't know how much, and we can never know how much simply because it's an authoritarian regime, and they don't want people to actually know um, how strong or perhaps less strong that that level of support is. But Walter's column is getting at something very important that – the Chinese 
China and the Chinese regime seem very formidable from afar. We look at them and we say, here is a rising power and they're going to keep on rising and they're going to overtake the U.S. in terms of um, GDP at some point and various levels of economic productivity and all of that. And we're almost as Americans waiting for the day that were eclipsed by this competing power. And I think there's something very short-sighted about that because it doesn't look at regime type, that there is something about the Chinese regime that in my view, and also I think in Walter's view, that makes it inherently, inherently brittle. Because the Chinese regime is an authoritarian regime, it's inherently, at least I would argue, illegitimate. It doesn't depend or rely on the consent of the governed. It relies ultimately on the use of coercion and force. Even if it enjoys some significant popular support, the regime isn't willing to test that through normal democratic channels. They're not willing to actually see what the people would would say about the regime or about the government in a fully free environment because they don't want it, you know, they, they don't want to see what that actually looks like. So ultimately that has negative effects on how they manage a contagion, how they, how they manage a, a, an epidemic, a pandemic like the one that we're seeing now with coronavirus because their incentive structure is misaligned. There's going to be a lack of transparency transparency. They're going to be very careful about what they share in their own domestic media and what they share with the international media. Um, and because of that level of secrecy um, and because of the level of corruption that we have at different levels of the Communist Party, that people don't want to take responsibility for for mistakes that are made because the consequences can be severe. We have a um, we have an environment that does not lend itself to dealing to accountability and to dealing with a crisis like this in a responsive way. So this suggests that the Chinese regime is weaker than a lot of Americans think it is. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, and again, you know, even taking a step back, uh, as, as so many things seem to be, uh, up in the air and, 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 you know, going in weird ways, it, it it also feels to me like, like, uh, um, you know, the United States is still ahead of pretty much anywhere in the world. I think I've said this before, but it's just, you know, uh, however, however messy things are here, like we're, we're just, we're just, we're just doing way better. Um, and that's your, your, you know, I think that your point about the resiliency of, of the way, uh, and just the function of how our system is set up, uh, the, the, um, accountability that's built into it and the sort of feedback loops that, that allow for self-correction. Um, exactly. And just on that point, I mean, our America, if we're talking about our country, our government or our governments are inherently unstable, but our regime is inherently stable. You could say something similar about Italy when people make fun of Italy, like, oh, they're always having new governments and no confidence votes or whatever it might be. Fine. Sure. Italian governments are unstable and they rotate quite a bit and sometimes one's undermined and another takes its place. But we don't doubt, generally, we don't doubt the durability of the Italian regime as a democratic system. 
we trust that the Italian, that the Italians will find a way to muddle through because their democracy enjoys a significant and really, I would say sufficient, probably, degree of legitimacy. No one is calling, as far as I can tell, for the overthrow of the, of the Italian, of this re- Italian regime type and proposing an alternative. Where I think that in China, you have almost the reverse. That, um, governments might seem stable, but the regime itself is unstable in the longer term. Cause we don't know about succession of power. We don't know what happens, um, after Xi Jinping is, is, um, you know, what happens after him because he's really personalized his own rule. He's become more and more authoritarian and he's consolidated his power over different organs of the Chinese state. So what happens after him? We don't have a clear answer to that. But luckily as Americans, we generally know what's going to happen after one president or another because we have a system that allows for clear mechanisms for rotating and alternating power. Well, what's interesting about the Chinese case, right, and why this is, uh, this, again, this particular episode is illustrative of maybe that fragility also is, um, you know, it's, it's recourse to, uh, to this kind of rhetoric, this kind of grievance rhetoric, which again, uh, ties to a little bit to our own woke culture, but in a, in a, in a different way. But, you know, institutionalizing uh, a rhetoric of grievance and making this sort of a, a justification for, uh, uh, for the regime, uh, that's, that's definitely, I think, a, a feature of, of, of the Chinese. But it's interesting, you know, you're talking about European countries, and I was thinking as you were, um, that's, I think, one of the things that, that may be, uh, when people get nervous about nationalism, uh, it's that. It's that, um, you know, uh, you use a culture of grievance to legitimate yourself. You're not legitimating yourself based on um, uh, the kind of, of uh, performance, and you're not you're not you're not uh, as as certain you know uh, in the inherent legitimacy of being judged on, on what you achieve. So instead, you you gin up this sort of stuff. And maybe that's part of what I think when when people on the right certainly get nervous about uh, you know our own culture of grievance uh and and wokeness and the rest of this it it is that um uh you know it leads to that kind of perhaps uh it's a it's a tool it's a tool to be used not that i think the right especially in this in this trumpian moment has much of a leg to stand on about um uh you know grievance culture uh and and legitimating authoritarian power uh but uh, I wonder, I wonder if if there's something there, you know, um, that that's maybe what makes a lot of people, most liberals, sort of uncomfortable about about uh, that kind of rhetoric. Don't dismiss their grievances, Demir. Who's Chinese grievances? <laughs> no, the, <laughs> the right. I, I wouldn't the dare. Mar- I've Mar- seen what happened to Walter. I would never. I would never dare dismiss. Mega country. They have real grievances, man. No, no, grievances is fine. It's it's weaponizing the grievances. That's what I'm talking about. It's fine to have grievances. It's it's. I mean, you know, it gets it gets a little tiresome when 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 you're you're talking about again this current political moment and. Um, uh, the sort of incessant critiques of, uh, of Trumpism, but he is doing that. He is, he is, uh, he's tapping into, um, that sense of grievance to basically 
excuse almost anything else he wants to do, right? I mean, that's that's one of his key things. Are you troubled by that? Of course, I'm troubled by it, Demeter. <laughs> of course I am. And also, like, there's some... It's remarkable that, um, just as like a little aside, I was thinking about this earlier today, that there's a new iteration of the so-called Muslim ban or travel ban or whatever you want to call it, and Trump added a country to it, Nigeria, right? and it got barely any attention, and there's just so much going on, and it's it's just remarkable to me that even something which I think is very extremely problematic and should be a national controversy only gets a blip um, because I don't even know what's going on. There's too much. Wait, what, what's going on? Yeah. We had impeachment last week, which I didn't care about yeah. for reasons that we've talked about in previous episodes. That's right. Wait, what was the other big story? Uh, State of the Union. Oh yeah. Oh my God. So my, in Iowa and uh, the, the yeah, Iowa scandal. Yeah. And, the, then, the, and then his, his, uh, his prayer breakfast speech also apparently. Yeah. And some people are saying that this is one of Trump's most successful weeks that he really came into his own, if you will. Right. He really became president. <laughs> This was the week that this Donald week. Trump became president. First, he lobbed those tomahawks into Syria, and then now this. <laughs> those are the two moments of him becoming a president. Oh man, yeah. So, um, okay, what, what? Wait, I, wait. What were we talking about? Uh, no, you, but you were making a point about okay grievances yeah, and grievance how they're weaponized, yeah, weaponizing that. Um, and I think that, but the left does it too. We have grievances and we weaponize them. Everyone's trying to find ways to do that. Right. So look, I guess let me, let me push on that a little bit because that's, that's maybe I'm, I'm going to make sense by the end of this episode about what bothered me about all of this and yeah, about, it seems and about, like this, but about I, racism. I think that you're, I, I, I think you're getting to something, but, but yes. Okay. Yeah. So look, um, it's the fact that uh, I, I, I sincerely believe that one oughtn't be careless uh, and antagonize people needlessly, right? I, that, that to me seems like a no-brainer, you know? You shouldn't write stuff that you know is calculated to offend, right? That's, that's bad. Wait, I mean— it, is it? I mean, well, look, within reason, I mean, unless you have a, a specific point for why you're doing it, you shouldn't do it just to get a rise out of people. I mean, I guess what you're saying about as a as a promotion thing, I I mean, I'm not uncomfortable about it. But you know what I mean? Again, what it gets down to this is, is, OK, a, a former colleague at the magazine once talked about um, uh, uh, trigger warnings. You know, we were having a, a debate in the magazine about trigger warnings and all of us were like, Oh my God, snowflakes, blah, 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 trigger warnings. How are the kids growing up these days? And you know, uh, uh, this colleague of mine, he said, he said, you know, there's a, there's a better way to think about it. It's just called manners. We used to, we used to have this sort of like, or, or, or kindness and, or just social, uh, uh, Sure, but yeah, look, that's different though, and I'm well. I'm, well okay. You know, again, the reason the reason I, I bring it up is because the flip side of it is is that everything becomes racist. You know, colonialism entails clearly barbarous behavior towards another people. Therefore, making invoking a sentence that was used during colonial times is necessarily racist. That to me is, there's a leap there that, that, that gets at this, uh, you know, this kind of grievance culture, um, that I think is troubling because it creates this opportunity for 
everyone to weaponize grievance. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what makes me uncomfortable about all of this. It's like it's like defining racism down or up. I don't know which way, but you know what I mean? Like every not that everything's racist, but but so much can now potentially be racist that we're not really talking about racism anymore. You know, I think I think using um, perhaps an unfortunate phrase from the 19th century as clever shorthand for something. And this is, I'm talking to, uh, to, talking to and about people, not who are, uh, not the Chinese authorities who are clearly playing a cynical game. I'm happy to bracket that more, more than happy to talk about it. It's more about people who are legitimately offended by this. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, to parse the legitimacy of that offense. I'm sorry. They should get over themselves. Yeah. Right. No, look, okay. I, when I'm writing something, I, my goal in my writing is never, it's never meant, I don't write a piece thinking I want to piss people off. However, I do write pieces where I think to myself, when this comes out, some people will be offended as a kind of byproduct of me writing it. And I don't have a problem with that. And I think that's a little bit different. So than what you had said earlier, but it's still sort of in this category of how do we feel about things that we know will offend people? Um, be, and I think that my starting point or premise is that everything I write, I believe. Otherwise, I wouldn't write it because writing to me is personal. It's meaningful. It's kind of what I do. And I, and I draw purpose from it. So I'm, I can't apologize for something I believe to be true, even if it has indirectly or even directly offended someone. And as long as I feel like I was justified and that obviously sometimes you're wrong and maybe I can go back and be like, okay, I actually made a mistake and there was an error here or I, um, I shouldn't, I literally, I really shouldn't have phrased something a certain way, but I think that I'm, I'm careful about words because, you know, words are my livelihood. So it's actually, you know, so if people come out of it thinking, oh, this is a, this is offensive, Usually my feeling is going to be, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but I'm not sorry that I feel the way that I feel and that I write what I write. And I'm not going to start the danger when we make concessions to, to readers who are easily offended is, um, we make, we make it about their feelings instead of what we believe to be true or what is meaningful to us as, as writers or as authors, right? Right. Um, and I think that's a dangerous, um, a dangerous path to embark on as a writer because then you start to lose faith in your own sense of what's important to you and what you're right. You know, you don't, you don't want to, it's just not a good look, I don't think. Right. So that's another deleterious effect of this, of this thing that's happening. But you said something there that, 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 that I think, um, I found helpful. Mm. And it, it's, it's, um, it's the sense that, 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 uh, you know, I think what's happening is that, that a sense of being personally wronged, uh, is now then somehow catapulted into a more universal evil. You know, like I, I am hurt by what you said. Uh, and then it's very easy to jump from that to you're a racist. 
Now, again, I, I need to be pretty careful about this because I, I, I'm, I'm talking about something very specific, I think. I, it's not that I'm denying the, the existence of racism or hate, or even hate speech, even though that's not a, a great word. But, but you know, it, it's, it's the, the fact that, that um, there's now a leap between personal offense and moral right and wrong that I think that's somehow been compressed in a way um, that is – Unfortunate, um, because we've lost religion. Yeah, no, <laughs> no it goes back. I Fine, think we yeah. talked about this. Yeah. I don't know when it was, like episode five or six or whatever. But you know how I feel about this. That um, in the in the vacuum where religion, or in this specific case, Christianity, once was in American public life, something else needs to take its place and fill the vacuum and give people meaning where meaning once was. And we're finding ways to mimic the certainty and conviction of religion without the actual substantive content of religion. Yeah. But I don't see how it can be otherwise because, you know, and I, I think that I maybe believe this a little bit more than you, Demir, that, you know, we are faith-based beings. We are, we are endowed by our creator with a sense of a desire and need for ultimate meaning. And I, you know, I believe in God and I'm open about that. And, you know, it's weird that I even have to kind of put it out there like, oh, as a disclaimer, <laughs> yeah. which actually says something about the kind of moment that we're in where it's actually becoming um, less common for someone to be open about their belief in God in liberal elite circles that one actually has to disclose it as a potential source of bias. Um, but, you know, if you believe in a creator, then presumably that creator endowed us with a sense or a desire to believe in him or to be closer to him, presumably, right? Right, right. Well, so I mean, we we have talked about this idea of Americanism as a as a proxy religion, also, right? Mm. I think it's 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 um to expand on that. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure you agree with this, right? Is that 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 uh, uh, even liberalism as a system of 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 as an ideology, it's a faith, is a faith, yeah, in its own way, it's in, in its own way, and and that's that's I guess gets me to to um uh sort of the other thing that I I want to like maybe pick at. Um, there, there's, I was just reading last week, uh, Ivan Krastev's, uh, not most recent book, but the previous one after Europe. Um, very good book. And he's got this, this, this really good passage. I mean, it's like almost two sections, um, some like 2000 words, um, where he talks about, um, how the European Union in particular was built on, um, on, on, on the very, it's, it's bedrock is a certain set of liberal beliefs about how things are structured. And they, the whole thing is structured on top of that. And he points to the fact that, um, at the, the, the heart of the problem for the European Union right now is on its one hand, it's, it's belief in universals. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the sort of stickiness of the fact that, you know, uh, people do not are not able to allow for complete movement of individuals. Right. And it's, it's, it strikes me that it's not a perfect match on the racism stuff, but there's, there's, there's a, a kind of thing that, um, we've lost, it seems maybe in this, as we, as we, as we are, uh, feeling this vacuum you talk about and trying to fill it with something. Um, 
that we inflate things beyond what they should be. Basically, you know, in a sort of normal liberal sense is obviously we think that uh, people have a set of rights and, uh, you know, it should be um, we should try to do as best we can to, you know, make sure as many of those are, are protected as possible. Um, and yet, if you universalize it and take it as almost sacred, holy writ, well, then you create a system that you get a lot of backlash against because, um, you know, you have uh, taken a set of beliefs and said that they are, you know, you can't negotiate about some of these things. So migration becomes one of these things where it's, you know, people have a, a right to basically move wherever they are. And since their people are interchangeable, um, none of this stuff matters. And you create the situation in the European Union um, where, uh, you know, it's it's getting undermined based on the sort of uh, really rock hard, uh, insistence on this belief. That, that's, that's a lot. I don't know. Maybe you can talk yeah. a little bit sort of to unpack so, that because that's a lot. Yeah. So there's so much good stuff in, in Krestov's writing on this. And I, you know, there's a couple paragraphs or just sentences I want to quote that really get at something important, but we should also mention for the purposes, for the benefit of our dear listeners that you, you have a great piece out in the American interest on nationalism that actually deals with some of these questions. And what's the point of having a podcast if you can't promote the work of your, um, of your co-host? <laughs> so, so I mean, we should definitely put a link for that piece and you can maybe say a little bit more about, uh, about the arguments in that piece because it does relate to what Krastev is getting at. But so what struck me about the these excerpts from Krastev's work that we had been talking about earlier over text message, he really sees the migrant crisis, the refugee crisis of 2015 as being a decisive moment in Europe's present history, if you will. Um, and I'm actually inclined in that direction that 2015 will be remembered as uh, to use a cliche a turning point um or as a moment that shifted the way we understood politics in this particular part of the world and that Europe will never be the same and it it feeds into something that I've written in my own work about how the presence of Muslims in Europe the growing presence of Muslims in Europe because of the Syrian civil war and its spillover effects will change not just the demographic nature of Europe as we know it, but the cultural and religious nature of Europe as we know it. Because the very, the very presence of growing numbers of Muslim migrants and Muslim refugees is forcing in, if you will, indigenous, uh, if it's not, it's not a great word, locals, locals <laughs> or native, native European populations to contend with fundamental questions about who they are and what it means to be European and what is the nature of the European project. I don't want to always put us as Muslims at the forefront of history that we're the ones who, even though that we're, even though we're a minority in Europe, somewhere between one and 8% in a lot of these countries. So it's not a huge number, but the fact that in some sense we're driving history is sort of a interesting idea that we could have that outsized effect well beyond our numbers. Mm. 
but what do so, you make of that? I mean, well, it's you know, it, it says something about our centrality to history, mm. and that we could actually be the ones who end up undoing the end of history. Right, but you know, so what's interesting to me, right? I think where you and I differ on this is that what I'm getting at, what struck me about the Krostev, what strikes me about the uh, yes, Demir, a Muslim centric. <laughs> no, 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 no. We where you and I differ is that that I I think you you uh you you're 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 not against universals and and what I'm you know I agree with you that. A hole is trying to be filled here, even though I'm not religious at all. I don't have that instinct. A hole is being filled here with this need for, for certainties, be it, be it, uh, a kind of good feeling of denouncing evils like racism wherever you see it. And therefore racism, you start seeing it everywhere. The, mi- the most minor offense can be categorized as something like that. Uh, be it that or be it, um, be it this idea that, you know, uh, you build an entire modern society on a set of values of, you know, universal, I don't want to say inclusion, but this kind of, this set of universal values, which you can't compromise on. It seems to me that, that, that we're suffering from, uh, a surfeit of, of, of this kind of, of almost, I don't know, uh, uh, extreme need for for that kind of universal certainty. And whereas you might say, well, we need religion to fill that. And I would say, fine, I don't, but you know, perhaps the world does. Um, overall, my, my immediate, uh, wish was that everyone just back off all of this sort of stuff. Basically, the European Union, if it wasn't so fixated on the eternal and universal truth of the values that it thinks it's built upon, um, and would say, well, we're trying as best we can with uh, the migrant question. And if there's an electoral backlash, they actually, you know, are forced to do it and then don't hand ring about it, but try and come up with pragmatic responses of how to how to best live the values that they claim they are not feel that if they're not, uh, you know, uh, Achieving the universal mm. in the world that it's a failure. I guess that's what I'm getting at. And it's tied to all of this, you know, be it, be it the kind of crusading moral righteousness in our, in our public discourse that leads to, you know, um, this kind of, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, virtue signaling, uh, and denouncing and our whole politics of, of, you know, social justice and the rest of this. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a kind of narrower morality, yeah. a more, a more wholesome thing, which is saying, you know, we can't achieve everything. We're human. We're in a, we're in a broken world, right? But we, we must strive for it, but striving within the limits of what's possible, not constantly getting lost in these, in these universals, be they, you know, the rights of the, the migrants that, you know, are inviolable or, um, uh, Again, uh, rooting out every ill thought that is, you know, grounded in historical injustice and, and expurgating it from our existence because it's evil. All of that seems to me is the problem. And, and, uh, my preferred solution is to somehow dial it back, though I don't know if that's possible because maybe we're just trying to fill that hole you're talking about that's left by lack of religion. Yeah. So a couple of things. And I think that one point that you make really well in, in your piece that um, came out 
today. Perhaps for our readers, it'll be um, a couple, couple of days. days. <laughs> I don't know, but but in any case, they should read it because. So, I think that you're getting at this idea that the EU, the very European project, depends on a certain set of universalist premises and a kind of progressive a progressive assumption about history's trajectory. Yeah. And that those assumptions did not turn out to be correct assumptions about human motivation and human nature, that there was a built-in assumption that Europeans or um, people who live in Europe, because even the, con- the, the concept of a European is questionable, that they didn't come to develop what you say, uh, they didn't develop quote unquote, the kind of enthusiasm for the project that its architects thought would naturally come to them with time, your words, Demir, mm. that they got something wrong, the architects of the EU, about what members of this European Union would feel about the European idea. They weren't able to develop this enthusiasm. They didn't believe. They didn't develop a faith. Right. Because that's not who we are. That's not who they are. That they're like we as like we as human beings cannot get excited about a supernatural, a supranational body that is ultimately somewhat related to um, a a somewhat unaccountable bureaucratic set government in Brussels, right? Like we can't get excited about that. We're not going to get excited about that. It doesn't touch us directly. It doesn't touch British people, French people, um, German people in that kind of, um, in the kind of visceral way. So something is not going to connect with people. And that's what we've realized. And Krastev makes this point in after Europe and perhaps I'll, I'll, um, if I can find this. Um, anyway, <laughs> he has amazing paragraphs about this. I just got too many windows open, I guess. But um, he gets at this sim- a very similar idea, right? Yeah. No. Uh, absolutely. I. I mean, I. I. I'm sort of deeply indebted to a lot of that stuff and and how I I think through it. I mean, it's just uh, he he's right on a lot of that. You know, the the and we can take all sorts of tangents on this, uh, but. One thing that I, I think is, is dear to your heart is, uh, you know, the, the importance of the idea of politics. Because let's not forget, you know, the, the paradox of the, the founding of the European Union, um, is that it's in many ways, I, I, this is oversimplifying, but on the one hand, it was an attempt to get over politics because politics were supposed to, uh, you know, have caused all the, the, the horrors of the two wars in the interwar period. And, um, so depoliticizing the continent was supposed to lead to peace. But at the same time, the other part of it, which the, they, they didn't really foresee and understand is, is that America was another sort of model. You know, you look at America and you have, uh, you have a society that, um, at least, uh, on the surface, uh, is is committed to a document, a constitution, a set of words put down on a piece of paper by a bunch of dudes, you know, a while ago. 
And uh, the emotional attachment to this thing was interpreted as, well, you know, we just need to come up with our own document that then people can have uh, will develop a certain kind of attachment to because it'll work and it will show that it works. That misunderstands the American project, I think, in a, in a fundamental way. Um, the, the, I was writing in the essay, part of it is that, you know, you can't have an attachment to something like that without politics. That's one of the big mistakes they made was trying to evade politics and just build attachment through positive outcomes. That's not quite right. Um, but it, it th- that then goes back to the, the, what I was saying, a related question about, uh, on the one hand, my feeling that, that these kinds of enthusiasm, these kinds of attachments are, are potentially unhealthy. Um, this idea to fill the void, uh, with attachment to things like the state. But at the same time, there is something about America where you do have this kind of irrational attachment to the system as it works here because it works, because it, it maybe demands a certain kind of, uh, engagement and maybe civic virtue or did in any case that 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 uh leads people to have feelings for it that europeans just haven't developed i don't know yeah so you you've kind of touched on one of my hobby horses and i think listeners of the podcast will know about uh, about my sort of semi-obsession with the idea of politics as conflict. Right. That politics is not supposed to lead to consensus or civility or unity. That actually there is such a problem as too much consensus. And actually I should mention, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I apologize in advance for this self-promotion, but, um, me and a colleague, Sharon Grewal, have a very long paper, a very long Brookings paper out about, uh, it's titled The Dark Side of Consensus in Tunisia. We use Tunisia as a case study to argue that consensus can be detrimental to democracy mm. because it, it misunderstands important aspects of what politics is and should be about, which is competition about different and conflicting ideas. And if too many people agree too much of the time, then you actually don't, then you, then you lose the benefit of having good competing ideas. And that's what democracy is supposed to produce. But if you have big national unity governments where everyone is in the same tent or most of the major parties are in the same tent, then you don't end up having a strong opposition. And without a strong opposition, it leads to a kind of democratic disillusion because voters are saying, well, what is the alternative to the status quo? If everyone is advocating the status quo and is actually part of the status quo in terms of the structure of government, then there isn't a kind of corrective mechanism for what the government does or doesn't do. Um, people can't hold the government to account. So I think that this gets to a, a bigger issue that – you know, if we want to apply this to the EU, the EU in some sense is about resolving the problem of politics. And, but the premise here is that politics is a problem to be solved. Right. Which no, for is- sure. Yeah. No, that's right. The, 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 the funny thing though, right, is that also at the same time for conflict to be managed, it has, to, you can't let any of the ideas be universal. They have to be subject to uh, 
if not compromise, at least that it's not, uh, that a sin is not being, uh, uh, perpetrated by your opponents when they're in power. It doesn't have to be that everything leads to compromise. I think that's false. Not that, that, that democracy is a road to compromise, but it has to at least, at least the, the strength of your beliefs in ideas has to, um, allow for, uh, disagreement and more than disagreement, the possibility of, of, uh, at least letting the wrong side win for a time, right? I mean, there has to be something over that. Yeah, and at some basic level, democracy is about the right to be wrong. And if you had, let's say you had a hypothetical situation where all major parties in European countries thought the EU was just great and dandy, that would actually be in some sense contrary to a democratic spirit because in if the political is real, if there is real politics, there should be parties that are excited and enthusiastic about the EU as a project, but then there should also be parties that are less enthusiastic about the EU as a project. If you ever got to a point where all major parties in a given country were like, we love the EU, that would actually be somewhat frightening. It would not bode well for what I consider to be um, what's at the heart of democratic competition. But there's something that, that the ideas underlying politics can't be that important at the same time. They can't be fundamentally, uh, life or death questions. If they're life or death Say questions. Say a little bit more about that. Um, well, I mean, if they're life or death questions, I, I've thought what about you, What the, do you consider to be a life or death question? Well, so, you know, the, the other essay I wrote recently was this review about nationalism in Central Eastern Europe, this book by John Connolly. Um, Did, uh, we should say for our, for our dear listeners, um, Demir is being just, you know, casual and rather modest, but he, he has been on a roll and <laughs> he has two major essays out in the past week alone. Now you've distracted me. I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> no, no, no. So, but thank you, Shadi. Um, no, the, 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 uh, the interesting thing about that, I, I, I sometimes think about, uh, you know, you look at, at, at the Balkans, uh, and it's, it's the, the problem in Bosnia, for example, is that you have ethnic parties. That you don't have political parties, you do have political parties, but, uh, and there, there are small civic parties, but the large blocks are ethnic parties. And the issue with an ethnic party is that it votes on along ethnic lines. That means that on some level, um, and you'll hear this from politicians sometimes, uh, from the region. It's like, I can't do that. I can't because my people, you know, and it, that's an existential question. That seems to me it's the kind of question that once you let that into the democratic process, that your group is, is your party and it feels threatened. This is the thesis of that, that, yeah. that John Connolly book that nationalism is, is largely is, uh, you know, uh, grows in opposition to an other. And, um, it's, it's that sense of a group being threatened. If you allow that concept, into uh, a multi-party democracy and you define parties based on that, um, you know, I, that, that's, that's a problem. And you have democratic dysfunction if you allow 
too much of that. Now, again, I'm not a comparativist. I'm not even a political scientist. So, I mean, tell me more. But, Demir, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a problem, but it's also, I think, if I understand your argument correctly, it's also natural. I mean, part of what you're arguing and also part of what Connolly is arguing in, in his book is that – Nationalism is a very authentic, if you, or national, uh, uh, sorry, natural, in quotation marks, expression mm-hmm. of a need for security. Right. That it arises naturally when people feel they have to protect themselves against external threats. Right. And there's nothing that's more natural than that need or that desire. And we happen to be in a time where a lot of people feel, rightly or wrongly, under threat from imagined or real forces, external or internal forces or whatever it might be. So if we're trying to look at why right-wing nationalism and right-wing populism is rising in such diverse contexts in different regions and with different cultures and different religions, it's because there's something about the modern condition that makes people feel more vulnerable than they would otherwise feel. And nationalism speaks to that sense of vulnerability, and it gives that vulnerability a voice. What's interesting about the 19th century is that, uh, you know, when you had empires and you had monarchies, uh, liberals and nationalists were hand in hand. Liberalism and nationalism were, hmm. were allies. Um and then, you know, by the time, certainly now, these things are seen as in opposition to each other, um, because, uh, to, to a certain extent, you can't have, um, a properly pluralistic liberal democracy if it allows nationalism into the party system. Because mm. it undermines the pluralistic concept. And the story of the, of the, of Europe, uh, certainly Central and Eastern Europe is one of nation states being born because of nationalism, because as empires fall apart. Um, but the challenge that ends up being, and it's an unhappy story in the 20th century because, you know, one empire is ultimately replaced by another, but it's that, that, you know, national nation states and proper nation states, um, they can develop Parties and parties develop along ideological lines that don't have to do with these things. But, you know, at the same time, uh, the real danger is of, is, is, is one of ethnic parties because you don't, you can't have that kind of pluralism. That's all I'm getting at. And that's what I'm saying is you have to have ideas that don't rise to the level of universals. And that's, I guess, what, what worries me about a lot of this virtue signaling, again, maybe to cycle back since we are at one hour already, but, uh, <laughs> maybe to cycle back to the beginning. That's what worries me about, uh, about, uh, you know, a lot of this kind of very shrill posturing about, uh, you know, social justice, about calling out racism because it's everywhere. Not saying that there isn't racism, et cetera, et cetera. But if but, racism is just, if, yeah. if racism is everywhere, then it's also nowhere. Well, certainly. But, but, but more than that, it's that if everything is racism and racism is evil, um, well then, you know, y- 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 there's nothing to talk about. Do you know what I mean? There's no way to do politics. Exactly. You can't do politics with, with something that is an absolute evil. And I mean, you see that this is the discourse that we have with Trump right now and, and Republicans versus Democrats. And that's why I almost, as you know, Demir, I almost never want to or am willing to use the word evil in public debate unless right. there is one exception mm. 
And you can probably guess what that exception is. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even like joking right now, the Chinese regime. And mm-hmm. I've actually said this on Twitter before that I hesitate to ever use such strong language because it's so decisive and definitive. But when I do think about evil, I do think about the, the, the crimes and atrocities of the Chinese regime. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, um, no, no, because it kind of goes back to like, cause we started talking about like the Chinese regime. No, and for sure. I, I mean, I think we should end up there because it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, but take all your points about legitimacy, about fragility, about their own sense of, I think, fragility and therefore, you know, uh, ramping up these sorts of attacks and, um, uh, uh, this kind of rhetoric about, you know, the wounding of the pride of the Chinese people. And, 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 uh, it's just interesting to me that this kind of sense of illegitimacy ends up relying on something that in an unrelated way is now bedeviling us, this sort of sense of grievance. Yeah, and also the fact that a people as a collective can have a pride in something, and how do we even speak for that collective, which goes back to a criticism we had about last episode about the Russian soul, in quotation marks, mm. or Russian exceptionalism, that someone on Twitter had apparently listened to, I guess, most of the episode, and more power to them, and we're happy to have people who are willing to do that. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that this person... um you know, we'll, we'll keep her anonymous. I think it's a her, but I could be wrong, but we'll keep him or her anonymous was saying that there was a kind of racist aspect mm. to what we were talking about that one of, there were four of us on the podcast. So we won't, we won't, you know, that, that one or two of us was saying things about the Russian, about Russian characteristics yes, or right. about the Russian soul. Right. That was racist and this person on Twitter was very offended. Um, even though, you know, uh, so do you have any thoughts about that? Cause I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, no. And, and I, I even said things that could be considered problematic about Egyptians, about the, you know, Egyptian, the Egyptian soul. And one of our friends were saying something about the rush, you know, the Russian characteristics. And these are our own, like, I, wait, should I, wait, is it our, it's not, I guess it's like half my own country is not actually my own country because right. my own country is America. But because my parents are from Egypt, I do feel a kind of personal connection to conversations about what Egyptian identity actually is. And one of our Russian guests who joined us, she's Russian and she was talking about what Russia means to her and she has every right to talk about her own identity and how she perceives it. Right. I mean, what, 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 what annoyed me about that in general, uh, is, is that, yeah, you know, I mean, if we, if we are to heed this, this dictum to not do what we did last time, I, we're, we're, I think I'd, I'd feel poorer for it. Um, you know, no, uh, but we would be silent. We wouldn't be able to speak. Ultimately, I mean, on the sort of... If you uh, take it to his logical, logical conclusion, conclusion that we can't, like, even people who are of their own nations can't actually speak about what it means to be who we are. Like, Americans can't talk about, like, American... I Like, 
what does it mean to be American? Russians can talk about, even if it's negative, what it means to be Russian. And that can be, that can be, it doesn't always have to be positive, especially if you have a history that's as tragic as, as Russian history actually is, or as Egyptian history actually is. Yeah. I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's deeply preposterous. I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've really tried to, to parse my words carefully in this podcast, but I, 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 you know, and I've tried to be careful on Twitter Let it when out, talking about this stuff. No, I mean, I, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's not good. Um, and my, my instinct is when people come at me with this stuff is to just ignore them. Uh, the, the striking thing about this episode and, and, you know, watching it unfold, uh, with Walter, uh, has been that, uh, you know, you have a massive state apparatus that is cynically playing this and you can't just blow it off. It has, it has a lot of knock on effects right now. And this nonsense, uh, this nonsense attitude, uh, among us, this self-righteous universal bullshit, um, is, is now, you know, is being cynically manipulated for that. Yeah, That's look, it. And Demir, you say that, you know, sometimes you have to let it go and ignore it, but, um, we, me and you, Demir, we are small people in the broader sweep of history, but some intellectual fights have to be fought. Yeah. And at some point you have to say, Hey, this is not going to benefit me. This is not going to m- make me new friends, but this is absurd. It's preposterous preposterous as you said and some things have to be opposed and countered and and we have to do so without apology no that's right that's right i mean again uh balancing it without uh oh, being careful uh in the sense that one should not gratuitously uh go after people i think that's that's one yeah. that's one way that in fact you know the sort of anti-pc right and all that that's just ends up being yeah. a circus of like giving offense wasn't it mid romney who actually wrote a book that was titled i think no apology i don't know is that right <laughs> you clearly don't read I, I, mid romney's yeah, wonderful I, books I've, I've ordered the entire <laughs> the, after the after after he's after he's proven himself to be an american hero <laughs> Anyway, Shadi, thanks. Uh, This was fun. This is great. Thanks, Demir. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.